Mars, how are we doing, Mars? Usually we fight in the streets, but because of COVID, we can't do that anymore. Right, yeah. So no one's getting shanked tonight, unfortunately. One um, of these days, we'll be able to hug and shank again. I'll go first if you want. Yep. Um, do it. Should I just go first? Go for it. Oh, okay. I was waiting for Jameson's opinion. <laughs> the important opinion. That's true. <laughs> you know. Okay. So, uh, so honestly, I gave you guys your subjects last week and I was like, oh crap, like, what am I going to do? Like, I didn't. So they're, they're not all connected in some certain way? Um, no. Okay. Well, uh, I don't know. Maybe. Well, so I, I guess we'll find out. I literally Googled, uh, Hollywood murder, uh, <laughs> and tried to find what I could find, uh, or murder scandal, uh, because I was like trying to find something that would fit in with yours and i came across this story uh which is pretty interesting um so this is the murder of gavin smith uh so yeah let's just get into it i got mm -hmm. most of my information from uh youtube i did watch oh god what was it it was like extra or something like that on extra, on this extra. i can't remember what it was Stephanie Harlow, of course, is a great YouTuber. She's very, very detailed in her stuff. Have you She's ever... the one with the glasses. With the, the glasses. glasses. Okay, yeah. yeah. Uh, she does, like, uh, her subjects are, like, three hours long. When she gets into a case, she gets into it. The last time I consulted on, like, or I didn't consult, like, I used her uh, as a resource was for my Heavenly Creatures that I went on for like maybe an hour and a half just right, on the story right, yeah. uh, because her video was three hours long on that. So uh, hopefully today I'll go a little faster and I'll try to sum it up a little bit better without using all of the details. So let's just get into it, okay? I also use Wikipedia. <laughs> Gavin Smith, okay. So Gavin Smith, he was um, described as this ultimate california guy so this was like he was like a very attractive very strong tan like when you think of like californian dude like this is the guy uh in 1973 uh he also, was also his name's gavin that's such a california name is it yeah. i don't know like have you seen gavin newsom talk like i love seeing that like he, he just reminds me of every like california <laughs> dude like i don't know He's got that like graggly voice too and like yeah yeah he sounds like he's about to be like shake it brah like that i don't know sorry continue with gavin <laughs> <laughs> um in 1973 he was named second uh team all-american uh by parade magazine he played college football at ucla under famous coach john wooden uh 1975 uh ucla won the ncaa championship and he was surprised when he was not drafted to a professional team so he moved to hawaii he played for the rainbow warriors for some time uh he was known for wearing a white headband and bringing his dog to practice you know uh so he seems like a pretty cool dude for the most part he uh ends up moving to la because he wants to become an actor why most of us move here, I assume. Uh, so he gets a few bit parts. 
he works as a stuntman for a while, but then he injures his, uh, the lumbar area of his spine and he is prescribed meds. Unfortunately, this leads to him becoming addicted to pain medication. Right. Damn. So in 1989, he's a waiter. He meets a woman named Lisa. Within a year, they are married. They have three boys who also look very Californian. Like, this family is so attractive. Uh, (laughs) You know. Californian. Yeah, but aren't they always, like, in in these murder stories, like, the family always is very good-looking? Uh, and then, like, tragedy strikes. That's true, yeah. Or, you know, yeah. Oh, never mind. Okay. Right. Anyway, so <laughs> Lisa runs uh, a bit a small business supporting the family. Uh, Lisa wants uh, him to go- end up getting a real job. So Gavin quits acting. Uh, and at 40, he ends up being hired at 20th Century Fox as a film distributor. Uh, for a time, he was working at a golf course, and because of him working at a golf course, he was able to make some connections with people in the industry, and that's how he ended up being hired for 20th Century Fox hmm. as a film distributor. Working out of the Calaba- his Calabasas office, um, sorry, working out of the Fox office in Calabasas. Uh, he becomes the regional branch manager for Dallas and Oklahoma City, and Lisa is able to quit her job. So Gavin uh, is the main breadwinner of this house at this time. You know, Lisa's very happy that she quits her job. But Gavin ends up being a big spender and an addict. And uh, because of the market crash in 2008, the um, value on their house plummets. Gavin ends up wanting to be an actor again. Uh, so him and Lisa start to have some issues with money and, you know, you know, what they want to do with their lives. Uh, and Lisa discovers that Gavin's spending is way more than what they're able to pay for their bills. So there starts to be a rift in their, you know, very strong romance that they had for quite some time. So, uh... He ends up spending his year-end bonus uh, and is taking money out of his pension. So they don't have money at this point. Uh, On April 13, 2012, Gavin packs his bags and his belongings and he leaves his home. One of his friends uh, finds him sleeping in his office and she tells Gavin that he can stay with her for uh this time so everyone just kind of assumes that he's having trouble with his marriage that's what's going on here and that's why he's leaving Mm -hmm. uh even his son there's a tweet that his son had said where it's like a real man doesn't leave his family you know so he's left um april 2012 uh in may 2012 gavin uh, does not pick up his kids and bring them to school. Uh, he did not go into work. And so Lisa reports him missing, uh, but was not taken seriously at the time because of the problems in the relationship and him moving out pre- previously. They just assumed that he had gone off his own merry way. Uh, a few days later, an APB is put on his black Mercedes, uh, a friend had said that he 
had, okay, the friend he was staying with had said that he had just come back from a business trip and was going to stay in for the evening. But the next morning he was not in his room and his black Mercedes wasn't there. So he ends up being a missing person for about a year. So let's dial it back a little bit and actually delve into what leads up to him leaving and what actually goes down. So this is in 2012, but all the problems start to happen back in 2008. So March 1st, 2008, Gavin is enrolled in an outpatient drug rehab facility. Uh, in 2009, he ends up becoming a group leader and he meets a woman named Chandrika, uh, which I pronounced right this time. I always get difficult names, but I pronounced right. So Chandrika and him end up having an affair. Chandrika is also married. She's married to a man named John Creech. John Tre Creech has a violent temper. Uh, in 2010, a couple of years later, he is picked up for selling bricks of cocaine to a man who also had uh, 250,000 oxycodone in his uh, car. Uh, they find meth, 25 pounds of marijuana, uh, a money counter, and $75,000 cash. Ooh, sounds like a Saturday night for me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, John Creech admits that he's the middleman, you know. Uh, so I think he goes to prison for that. But that's a couple years later. That's in 2010. But, okay, so we're still in 2008 right now. Uh, so John Creech finds Gavin's number in Chandrika's cell phone. and uh, Or on the cell phone bill. And Shandrika claims that uh, when he find, finds out, he gets violent with her. And uh, he ends up paying Gavin a visit at his job. Uh, Shandrika and Gavin cease contact with each other and the relationship ends. Air quotes. quotes. Yeah. Mm. So gavin and lisa start marriage counseling gavin tells lisa that the relationship with shandrika is over lisa and gavin go to hawaii together in 2010 shandrika starts emailing gavin out of the blue and john reads the emails and sends gavin an email that says i'm gonna get you gavin your wife is getting a copy of this email you're effed you little prick so Lisa confronts Gavin about the emails. Gavin tells Lisa uh, that John is dangerous and that he should have his phone number changed. Uh, in December 7th, 2010, so this is maybe around, wait, let me see. Somehow this is maybe around the time when John Creech ends up uh getting arrested for having all that cocaine but i'm not sure if he goes to prison right away actually no that wouldn't make any sense sorry edit all that out <laughs> <laughs> december 7th 2010 lisa takes her two sons over to john creech's house okay so this is the, a weird incident that actually happens lisa takes her two sons to 
John Creech's house where he lives with Shandrika, she waits in the car while she sends her two sons up to his house to say, hey, please leave our dad alone. You know, uh, what? yeah, it's very odd mm-hmm. um, because Lisa knew that he had been threatening um, Gavin for a while. The two boys knock on the door and John Creech is like confused, like, why are you two here? You know, uh, and uh, Evan and Austin, who are these two boys, they apologize. Austin tells John Creech, I'm only in eighth grade. I'm too young to lose my dad. Uh, John what? Creech <laughs> John Creech tells them that he is having their dad followed and he knows everything about them. Uh, but he promises that he would leave Gavin alone if the relationship with Shandrika ends, you know, like he kind of says something very vague, like, well, you know, you don't have to worry about anything. You know, if Shandrika, if he leaves Shandrika alone, I'll leave your dad alone, you know, but it's like very much, it's very weird. And at some point, John Creech does say like, you two just saved your dad's life. Um, very weird situation. Hmm. Uh, that's, uh, yeah, that's crazy. So April 12th, 2012, Shandrika finds out that her husband, John Creech is having an affair with an 18 year old high school student. <laughs> so, uh, April 13th, 2012, Lisa finds out that Gavin is having an affair with another patient named Melanie. Uh, and was also still talking to Shandrika. Oh, the tea. <laughs> <laughs> and Lisa asks him to leave. So uh, mid-April, Gavin goes to pick up Shandrika while she is walking, walk, walking her dog. John Creech, who had followed her, ran towards the car, jumps into the passenger seat, uh, and they drive away. So on May 1st at 10 p.m., Gavin calls Shandrika to meet up with him. She uh, informs her grandmother's caretaker, a woman named Raina Lynn. Her name will come up a little later. So the grandmother's caretaker who lives in the house. uh, So in the house with John Creech is Shandrika, her two sons, or I think, I believe her two children, her grandmother and her grandmother's caretaker, Raina Lynn. So John Creech, uh, so Shandrika tells Raina Lynn, the grandmother's caretaker, that she's going out. And John told her that if she leaves, he would have someone follow her. So at 11 p.m., she drives away in her Audi. Uh, She meets up with Gavin in his black Mercedes. Uh, she gets out uh, uh, and goes into the black Mercedes, but she leaves her cell phone in the Audi. Now, John is able to track where she is using uh, the cell phone because AT&T had this like, find the same people on your plan thing going on. So mm-hmm. he was able to track where she was uh, using the, se- the cell phone plan. So, uh, John borrows Shandrika's mother's minivan and he arrives at the parking lot 
Chandrika and Gavin are both sitting in the passenger seat. She's sitting on his lap. And John rips open the door, screaming. John lunges and punches Gavin repeatedly. Chandrika climbs out of the driver's side door. She, like, crawls. Oh, no. Yeah, she climbs out of the driver's side door. Uh, Chandrika gets into the minivan, her mother's car, screams at John to stop. He doesn't stop until she mentions that she that he's going to go to jail for doing this. And he tells Chandrika that she's next. So Chandrika drives away all the way back to the house that she's living with John with. Mm-hmm. She runs inside the home, uh, yelling, he's going to kill me, and she locks the door of the house. And John Creech, because she went away in the minivan, he has no way of getting home, so he walks home. When he arrives at the house, he's calm, but he's covered in blood. Uh, And he says, I'm not going to hurt you. I just need you to give me a ride back to the parking lot because Gavin needs to go to the hospital. (laughs) So he's worried about Gavin now, huh? Yeah. (laughs) So Shandrika drives uh john creech uh back to um the basically the area where the black mercedes and her audi are parked uh and gavin is in the car but she she drops john creech about a mile away because she doesn't want to see how gavin looks um so uh uh basically she gets out of the car or she gets in she tells him to get out of the car she tells john creech to get out of the car like a mile away and she's Um, gonna drive back home or she's going to the garage i think she just she just goes back home okay uh yeah the two cars the her audi and the black mercedes are in a parking lot got it uh so i'm assuming she took the minivan the mother's minivan over there but I'm not sure from what. Okay. So at this point, from what I've kind of read is that, uh, John Creech ends up driving the black Mercedes with Gavin in the car back to his house. At some point he calls his friend, George, uh, valets. He calls him like 15 times. George, for some reason, doesn't have this phone number in his phone, so it's just a random number calling him, so he doesn't pick up right away. When he finally does, he realizes that it's his friend, John Creech, and he thinks that John Creech sounds drunk, and he's like, hey, I need to come over, I need to bring this car over to your house. And he just thinks that, like, oh, he's been having a fight with his wife, there's, like, something like that going on. Mm -hmm. So John arrives in a black Mercedes, with his tank top inside out, but at what appears to be blood on it, and his right hand is swollen. George refuses to let John park the car there at his house, but George does let him park it at his parents' house. <laughs> which is weird. So <laughs> I'm not getting in trouble, but you get my yeah. parents in trouble. Right, There's a right. lot of like weird things that like went on with this, and the cast of players throughout this, like is just it's so odd that all these people were okay with assisting him and at no point were like whoa what's going on like this is not okay and at no point does anybody really call the police 
it's it's just so odd. Hmm. So anyways, they drive it over to his parents' house. George drives his own car with John following in the black Mercedes. When they get out, John asks for Windex and paper towels to clean the black Mercedes. Uh, he cleans specifically the steering wheel and the center console and the driver's door. Which... Do you say Windex? Windex. Is that like... Would that, would that clean up blood? It would clean up fingerprints. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. You just need like any... Which is why he's focusing on that area. Oh, okay. No, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I got sidetracked. Yeah, that makes more sense. <laughs> so, at one point, John calls his gym friend, Stan McQuay, at 6 a.m. and asks him if he can park the car in his garage. Uh, when he gets there, he quickly drives the car into the garage and asks Stan very quickly if they could cover the car. Stan mm -hmm. thinks that he sees a body in the passenger seat, but John wouldn't let him get a good look. So, so they did cover it? They covered the car with like a car cover. And he was like, oh, let me... Like, no, don't no, look no, 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 The cover is really cool. The cover yeah. is really nice, man. Yeah. So, Stan drives John back to the entrance of the, his gated community where George is waiting for him and George drives John home. George asks John, hey, what happened? And John says that he got in a fight with another man uh, that was sleeping with his wife. And John tells Stan that he will be back for the car in a few hours and then leaves with George. So, when John gets dropped off, uh, he gives George his cell phone and he says to him to get rid of it. <laughs> like Nothing shady about that. Yeah. yeah, yeah exactly. Like, oh, we're going to do some shady shit with this car. Oh, by the way, also get rid of my cell phone. Like, you got to be a real good friend, you know, for that. And and also, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah that, <laughs> sorry, that's, that's like, hilarious. Yeah, what is going on? George takes the cell phone and says that he threw it in a trash can of a McDonald's. So John Creech gets inside and he tells Chandrika that Gavin is dead. And so they take off their clothes that they were wearing and they burn them in the fireplace. Chandrika claims that she wanted to call the police, but John threatened to tell them that she was part of it and that he would kill her. So Chandrika doesn't do anything at all. Uh, so Stan, who is holding the car, starts to get upset because John doesn't come back for a few days and threatens John that he's going to call the police. Maybe you should have just called the police instead of threatening <laughs> to call the police right? yeah, exactly. when, there's when there's been an obvious uh -huh. dead body in your garage. I still haven't looked under the tarp, but I'm guessing it's not good. Yeah. And <laughs> later, later on, later on, Stan would complain that his garage smelled like a dead body. Like later That's on, he'd hilarious. be like, oh, yeah, he left the car in there for so long and it smelled so bad. And it's like, like, it's probably just a skunk. Really? Like, really? Like, that's that's what you're going to bitch about right now? That's... Okay. So, okay. On May 4th, John Creech has the caretaker, Raina Lynn, call and rent a U-Haul truck to go and get the car. Uh, but he actually tells her it's to transport Gavin's body. So he tells Raina Lynn what's, what's up 
you know? So John shows up at Stan's. <laughs> or maybe he's like, it's the Prancer's body. He's asleep. He's been asleep for a few days in the car. Don't, By dead don't, body, I mean Mercedes. Don't. <laughs> Anyways, so John shows up at Stan's with uh, the U-Haul. So John shows up at Stan's with uh, U-Haul, uh, but he only takes the body and he leaves the car behind. So the next day, his 18-year-old girlfriend actually mentions to him that the father of her friend from school has gone missing and tells... tell no. Yeah. Oh, God. Here and we go. He, <laughs> he tells her it's the man that his wife was sleeping with. So, like, now she knows. But she doesn't do anything. So June 1st, he has the caretaker rent a storage unit. Two men show up at Stan's house and take the car on a trailer to the storage unit. Evan and Austin, which are Gavin's sons, tell the police about their encounter with John Creech, uh, and this ends up making him a suspect. Shandrika ends up confessing everything that she knows to an informant that is kind of sent to her through this like sting operation. She didn't say anything to police right away when she was encountered, but... She was kind of confronted at some point. She does tell this informant what's happening. So the police are able to get a hold of Raina, George, Shandrika, Stan, and everybody involved, basically. And they offer them all immunity for their testimony against John Creech, which I think is appalling um, because they all played a part in it. Mm -hmm. They Honestly, I don't think they deserved immunity, but... That's what happened. So Raina Lynn ends up leading the police to the storage unit. John Creech's DNA is found on one of the screws left from where he tried to remove the, or where he removed the license plate. So they have a strong case against John Creech, but no body. So a lot of time passes before there's an actual murder case. But... In 2014, a man, and I found out his name, I love his name, his name is Rocky Ramos, and his dog, Buddy, were walking (laughs) through Angeles National Forest when they find a human skull. It's just the top piece of the skull, the jaw is actually missing. Uh, And a few yards away, police later find a body wrapped in a comforter, plastic sheet, duct tape, in uh, in a shallow grave. It appears that the skull had been removed by animals. (laughs) So, which is very lucky, like, that the animals, like, dug into the grave, because if the skull wasn't close to the path, they would have not found that body. That's true. I wonder if I heard about this story. That's crazy. Yeah. Um, So, I mean, this is 2013. This is pretty recently, you know. This is within our lifetime of living here in Los Angeles. Right, yeah. You know. You know what I'm thinking? I think I'm mixing it up with that story of the guy who murdered his boyfriend at Griffith Park. It was the same kind of deal where he uh, he didn't bury the body very well, and, and an animal kind of got into it and and uh, exposed some parts, and, I, and they found him. So I think it's the same same kind of deal. Mm. Oh, crazy! Did we do that on the podcast already? Um. Yes. We when we when I talked about the Hollywood sign, I kind of covered that. Oh. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 So I did. Um. Because that's how I kind of knew about the story, but. I, I remember hearing about that 
And uh, I don't remember if it was that story or the, it was in the Angeles National Forest, but it's the same situation, so. Crazy. That's the reason why you hear the phrase six feet under is because you're supposed to dig six feet mm-hmm. under so that the animals don't get to the body. There you go. Yeah. Pro tip for you guys out we're, there. We're <laughs> for all you dead hookers out there, six feet down, please. <laughs> <laughs> Because it's the hooker's fault for not being far enough in the ground. That's hilarious. It's always the woman's fault. Oh my god. That's hilarious. Yeah, right. Uh, The hooker's like, no! Only do it three feet. (laughs) Um, Medical examiners confirmed that it was Gavin Smith and that he had died from blunt cranial and facial trauma most likely caused by fists so he beat him to death yeah hmm yeah so uh yeah uh so when he it's easy for the police to get a hold of john creech because he's at in prison at this time um i don't know if it was because of the cocaine bust and everything that i had said before uh, but he's in prison, so they're able to get him pretty easily. Uh, John claims that Shandrika is an alcoholic, that uh, when he was confronting them, uh, he was there just for Shandrika's safety. He mentioned something about like throwing her keys into the bushes so she couldn't drive home because she was so drunk, and that mm. like. And that Gavin tried to hit him with a metal object. And from what I was reading, like the, the description of the metal object keeps changing. And at one point in court, his lawyer is saying that it's something that appears to be an ice pick. Why does Gavin have an ice pick in his car? Why is he... In a parking lot. <laughs> Making out with his girlfriend. Yeah. Apparently, Stephanie's still listening to us. I'm listening while sleeping. So, no more dead hookers, guys. I'm listening while (laughs) sleeping now. We should be like, Stephanie. Stephanie. Awaken. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, in court, they're, like, describing, like, this ice pick that Gavin has. The metal object is obviously never found because it doesn't exist. Um and there's overwhelming evidence. Shandrika even brings in photo evidence of her being previously assaulted by John Creech. So the jury deliberates for less than an hour. Uh, the jury is made up of nine women and three men, and they come back with a verdict of guilty of voluntary manslaughter because it was a crime of passion. And John Creech gets 11 years for the crime. And that's it, guys. That's all I have for you. That's it. Yeah. Yeah, man. It's crazy that you can do 25 years for drugs, but you kill somebody and it's only 11. You can smash a person's head in with your fist and you will only have 11 years. Right, yeah. As long as it was in the, the, the crime of passion. Yeah. That's hilarious. The passion is what really counts. Mm. What? I'm a passionate guy, huh? I'll just say yeah, that the, right. the next time, years. yeah, someone's busted for weed, just be like, I was passionately passionate sm- about smoking this, this roach. Yeah. 
Um, I was passionate about wrapping him in a comforter and burying him. <laughs> Love that blanket. Uh, you guys had me do uh, Bob Crane. Bob Crane. Mm-hmm. Good times. Bob Crane. I know nothing about this. Bob, Bob, Bob. I just saw it on a list of like Hollywood murder scandals or murder mysteries or something. So like, yeah. I, yeah, it's, it was an interesting well, story. I mean, he's he's definitely um, uh, he's definitely iconic. If you were you know if you were of the age that you remember him, he's like you know a pretty pretty famous guy. Uh, so you know if you're over the age of I would say fifty, you definitely you know grew up watching him on TV <laughs> and probably remember the scandal of this happening. Uh, he died he died like right before I was about a year before I was born, so I, I wasn't aware of of this story as a kid. Um, but growing up obviously with, you know, Hollywood scandals and stuff, that definitely was one of the big, the big ones. They even, you know, the great Kinnear movie came out in 2002, which I did not get to see. I was looking for it and I, I couldn't find it. Mm. Um, so I don't, have you ever seen auto, uh, autofocus before? Uh, no, never Ooh. have. No. Uh, I haven't either, but, uh, I heard it was pretty, uh, pretty spot on. Um, I think the, his, uh, Bob Crane's son, um, helped out with a lot of it, but they also said that they embellished some things to make the movie a little bit more interesting. So, mm. um, but yeah, so let me tell you the, 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 the real story of Bob Crane, uh, or Robert Edward Crane, as it were. Um, funny enough, didn't realize this. He was actually born in Connecticut in Waterbury, Connecticut, um, on, uh, July 13th, 1928. Nice. And, uh, he was, um, he was a good kid. He, uh, took on playing the drums very early in his age and uh, got got very good at, at what he did and um, was soon playing in uh, his middle and high school bands. And then he actually got a, a job with the uh, Connecticut Symphony Orchestra um, and, and did very well. I graduated high school two years later, joined the National Guard in 1948, uh, did two years and was honorably discharged in 1950. And uh, right around that time, he also marries his high school sweetheart, whose name is um, Anne um, Erzian. Sorry, Anne Erzian. Uh, and they have three kids. Uh, he names his first son uh, after himself, but not uh, he's not a junior. Uh, Bob Crane's middle name is Edward, and his son's name is uh, middle name is David. So you got Robert uh, David, you have Deborah Anne, and you have Karen Leslie. Mm. So uh, he wants to get into radio, so he starts uh, trying out for different radio stations, and he lands a job in New York City. I'm uh, sorry, in New York State, not New York City. Um, but uh, uh, I, he doesn't land a job at first, because every time he puts out, like, uh, you know, he, he records tapes of himself and sends them in, and apparently they weren't pleased with how, how low his voice was. His voice wasn't low enough for radio. But he does land a job in New York um, at WLEA, uh, and then he um, <clears throat> wants to get back to Connecticut, so he uh, tries out for. Uh, he sends in some other tapes uh, uh, back to these radio or to these TV stations and radio stations in Connecticut. And uh, <laughs> apparently, something goes wrong with the recording apparatus, and it actually plays the tape slower, so it makes his voice sound deeper, and that's what gets him the job. <laughs> they said they panicked a little bit when he showed up because then he started talking. They're like, "Wait, you're the same guy? That was." That's not what he sounded like. So there's a little bit of a panic, but he actually ends up um, 
become it was like moving up the ranks very very quickly and he's like program director within like six months so they, they really like him and he and he does well uh this is when he's working for wbis and wicc in connecticut um he's there for a year or two and then he hears about a gig at uh, out here in los angeles and he flies out and gets the job and he works for knx you guys know knx a news, a news radio out here, I believe. AM News Radio now. Uh, no, I don't. Yeah. So I think it's I think it's eight ten. I'm sorry, I'm I'm. Oh, okay. If it's eight ten, I've but, actually yeah, that's uh, one I would listen to with my brother doing jobs and stuff out here. Yeah, eight ten or something like that. But anyways, he so KNX is still a, a station today, and uh, he gets the morning show from six to ten a.m. So lands that and does very well. He's 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 very good at his job. Um, he's very, uh, people are very comfortable talking with him. So he starts interviewing all these big movie stars and he gets in Marilyn Monroe and Jack Lemmon and Ronald Reagan. And he's just doing very well. He's very popular in Los Angeles and is making a name for himself. So, um, he, let's see here. Okay. So he tries to break into television and he gets some uncredited roles in the beginning. Uh, one of which his first is, uh, He's actually a voice on the radio for an episode of The Twilight Zone. One of the characters is listening to the radio, and the voice that you hear on the radio is Bob Crane. Um, <laughs> he uh, lands an episode. Uh, he lands a uh, uh, like a bit part on the Dick Van Dyke Show, where he plays one of the characters' boyfriends, and that leads nice. to him um, getting uh, a big part on the Donna Reed Show from 1963 to 1965. Um, on the, on that show, he's he's a recurring character, so he comes back uh, uh, throughout two seasons and gets pretty uh, popular. And because of that, he's able to uh, have CBS approach uh, him about doing a television show called Hogan's Heroes. Now, have you guys ever heard of this television show, Hogan's Heroes? Oh uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay, so for those of you who don't know what this television show is, uh, this is a television show that was about uh, a gentleman named uh, he was a. Colonel Hogan, I believe it was. Uh, Colonel Hogan was actually a POW, a prisoner of war, in a World War II POW camp. Not a concentration camp, a POW camp. And obviously it's being run by Nazis. And when Bob Crane was actually shown the script, um, he told his his, uh, manager that he wasn't interested in it because he wanted it to be a comedy. And he thought that it was a drama. (laughs) They're like, no, this is actually, (laughs) this is a comedy. It's like, what? doing a comedy about a Nazi POW camp? Like, yeah. Right. And so they, everyone's like, okay. And they shoot it and it comes out and it's, it's like an instant hit. Like everyone loves it. Mm-hmm. And it ends up being on the air for six seasons. Um, 1965 to 1971. Uh, Hogan's Heroes is one of the biggest shows on television. Wow. So, you know, because of that, you know, this is the 1960s. There's, you know, you got three networks, not many TV shows to choose from. So everybody knows who Bob Crane is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, pretty nuts. Um, during this time, uh, he divorces his wife, uh, his first wife of nearly 20 years, uh, and he actually marries one of his co-stars from the television show, whose name is Patricia Olson. Uh, she plays Hilda, who is the buxom blonde secretary of one of the Nazis on the television show. Uh, and he, uh, he marries her, actually having the wedding on the set of Hogan's Heroes, uh, with... And I'm not sure how accurate this is because I get conflicting stories on it. Having Richard Dawson as his best man. You guys know who Richard Dawson is? 
Uh, no, no. <laughs> right. So uh, from your silence, I would gather no. Um, he was the host of Family Feud for a long time. Oh, uh, okay. And if you've ever seen The Running Man, he's the bad guy in The Running Man with Arnold Schwarzenegger. What? Uh, oh, yeah, he also plays the television uh... host on that show, too. He, he plays the host of the, the Running Man television show. So he's the bad guy in it. And, uh, That's funny. Why does Patricia that... Olsen sound familiar? Um, he, was, he was the really... Um, pushy guy well, I don't want to say pushy but like the touchy feely guy on Family Feud where he was always like right, grabbing the women right, and like kissing them and right, kind of yeah. get a little too friendly with them so uh, that was him so if you ever go back and watch it in the 70s Richard Dawson was definitely well known for being very friendly with the ladies um, <laughs> the reason I say that I got conflicting results is because, or, or stories is because on, on the two on a few of the different um, places that I was looking at that which would be uh, EW.com um uh, I also did uh, Wikipedia, and I did. There was another one too. And I'll get back to that. Sorry, I don't have it at, at the moment on me. Uh, but they were saying that uh, him and Richard Dawson actually were not that, that that they weren't really cool with each other. That there was a lot of tension on the set between them. So I thought that was kind of odd. That one story said that he was the best man, and then other stories were like they were not friends at all. And then other stories be like, no, he came to the Christmas party at Bob Crane's house. So uh, you know, take take what you think there. Make it make it your own. Hmm. Um. So he, he marries her. Now he's divorced and married to, to Patricia Olson. Um, and they have a son named Scotty, and they adopt a daughter named Anne-Marie. So now he has uh, five kids. Um, and apparently they, they divorce uh, in 1977, but um, reconcile uh, shortly before uh, Bob dies. Um, after Hogan's Hero ends in 1971, um, he's kind of struggling for work. Um, he... Stars in two Disney movies, uh, one called Super Dad and one called Gus. Um, I've never heard of either one of those movies. However, <laughs> uh, Kurt Russell was uh, one of his co-stars in Super Dad. Nice. Um, let me see here. So he films those two movies, and he doesn't make anything else with Disney. I'll come back to that in a moment. Um, he ends up uh, doing some some small. Roles. He basically can't get anything juicy anymore. Uh, he he, he kind of flops around doing guest stints on different things, but it's always a guest stint. Um, shows like uh, uh, Dor- The Doris Day Show, Quincy, Love American Style, The Love Boat. Huh? The Love mm-hmm. Boat. No. <laughs> Sorry. That's just me? Sorry. No, no. Um, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll edit in some nice music for that. Thank right you. Yeah, yes. No theme show uh, openers would be great um so he uh he uh then lands a uh a television show and it it slowly adapts into the bob crane show uh but it only lasts 13 episodes and is canceled um so with that he's kind of looking around for things to do and he ends up buying a a play called beginner's luck and it becomes kind of like a dinner show, like a traveling dinner show. And at the time, those were very lucrative. So he, he's able to still perform. He's still acting. He's still getting the accolades of people, you know, excited to see him. But now he's been kind of reduced to more of a traveling theater kind of guy. So um, that's how he ends up in um, Arizona, uh, where he's uh, uh, doing one of the shows. And he's staying in a hotel uh, near where the dinner theater is. Um, the uh, the company has put him up into into his own um, place uh, in the Winfield Place Apartments in Scottsdale, Arizona. 
Um, and on the day of uh, June 29th, 1978, um, he is supposed to show up uh, to a lunch meeting with uh, his co-star, Victoria Ann Barry. Um, and when he doesn't show, she goes uh, to his apartment looking for him because she's concerned. Um, he's never, you know, he's a professional. And he's never missed things before. And so she's worried. So she goes to uh, his uh, apartment. And uh, when she gets there and uh, opens the door, she finds uh, Bob Crane um, a bloody mess in his bed. Oh, jeez. Now, uh, when the police arrive, it, they uh, deduce that he has been um, savagely beaten uh, with a blunt instrument. Uh, the instrument was never found, and they uh, speculated that it was maybe perhaps from a, the, tr- uh, the tripod of a camera. Um, there's two big hmm. gashes over his uh, right ear, I believe it was, uh, and there, there's just blood. All, the, the, the pillow is soaked in blood, uh, you know, all of the sheets, that kind of thing. Uh, there's no sign of forced entry. Uh, there's no robbery. Um, it just looks like, oh, but there is an electrical cord wrapped around his neck. Um, but yeah, with nothing, with no kind of um, evidence of, of it looking like a robbery or a break-in or something like that, um, yeah. they're, they're pretty sure that he, he knows the person. And so they start looking for their, uh, for their uh, suspects. Um, so let's go back for a minute here. Let's, let's, let's rewind a little bit here. Now, um, as Bob Crane is on the set of, of Hogan's Heroes and he's getting chummy with everybody. Um, he starts to hang out, well, he's hanging out, he's friends with, like I said, with um, uh, Richard Dawson. Richard finds out that um, Bob is really into photography and he's really into video recording things. Um, at this time, this is still kind of a fledgling thing. So owning your own camera is kind of a crazy you know, thought and, and, and that technology really was kind of spawning. So, um, Richard is like, Hey, I got this, this friend, his name is John Carpenter. Now that's not John Carpenter, the director, uh, <laughs> different John Carpenter. Um, but, uh, he's like, yeah, I have this friend, uh, John who, uh, works for Sony. Um, he works for, he's a, ma- a sales manager for Sony electronics and John, um, basically his, his forte is, helping, you know, famous people set up their equipment and, and learn how to use it and, and just get good with it. So uh, Richard hooks up Bob with, with uh, John and says, hey, you guys should should get to know each other. And, and they do. They, they hit it off very well. And Bob kind of lets uh, John in on the fact that um, he really, really enjoys sex. Uh, he really enjoys photographing naked women he enjoys photographing himself having sex with the women whatever it is he's really into it and john is like (laughs) cool man i got your back i will totally help you make all this recordings and for a year or two they get super tight and john is planning his trips around where bob's gonna be and they're meeting girls and they're having lots and lots and lots of sex with uh beautiful women bob is a good looking guy if you ever look up pictures of him he's a good looking guy you know um, do the, also do the fact that I'm sure, you know, everybody knows who he is. Uh, and he's, mm-hmm. you know, you know, obviously very famous and, and good looking. He's getting women. No problem. He starts making books of these things. He's got books of photographs of these women. He's got the movies. He's got all this stuff. And when he gets hired at Disney, 
he starts showing people on the like the like the workers on the set all these photographs. Jesus oh. Christ! And so really? that's why that's why <laughs> that's why he ends up making a couple of films with Disney because all the executives at Disney are like, uh, yeah, that's not cool. You're totally flashing this shit around here. Well, and it's also like it's not like you know like oh I have my phone on me it was accidentally on my photos or something you know what yeah. I mean it's like right. yep. what did he. He like went around like, oh, uh, let me flip to this portfolio. Yeah, he's like, check out this binder, you know. Jesus. Yeah, <laughs> yeah like I it's like binder. No, it's like not, he's got thousands of photographs, so it's you know he, he's and he's he's proud of it. You know, he's showing yeah. it off, and you gotta be careful with that stuff. And... You know, like honestly, I'm I'm a hundred percent sure there would have been like one or two Disney employees that would have been like totally down and stuff, oh, I'm but sure. like. You got to get to know people a little bit better before you're like, "Hey, look at my book." Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know. That's hilarious. Yeah, there should be something before then. Yeah. So it, they were very. His son was very adamant on pointing out that you know all these women were were of age and they were consenting. There was never any drugging or involved or any kind of forced activity. Yeah. This is just something that his dad was super into. His dad was really into nudity and pornography and. And, and, and was very happy and proud of it, you know? Um, well, I guess, I guess you know, spending this much time with John and <clears throat> going through these motions with him, he gets tired of John, and he starts to think of him as more of kind of like a star, a star fucker, you know? He's just, he's there to kind of suck off of him. And uh, the night before, uh, June 29th, 1978, they're seen arguing in a bar uh, about things. And basically what... It was said was that, in a way, Bob was basically breaking up with them and saying, "I, you, I'm not hanging out with you anymore. I'm done. I, this is, I'm done with this." And uh, so, John John Carpenter quickly rises to the number one suspect in the murder of this, of the, of uh, Bob Crane here. And uh, so they they, you know, the police take him. He has a rental car because he's also in town. He's staying at a different hotel and had left uh, the bar the night the night before with a different woman. Uh, he left with a woman, Bob left with a woman, uh, but they went to separate hotels. So the police search his car and they do find blood in the car. Um, but there's not enough evidence to, to, to link them. There's no fingerprints or anything like that. They don't have the DNA testing at this point yet. So basically, um, they don't have enough, enough evidence to, to hold John Carpenter, uh, and they have to let him go. And he basically is, uh, there's no, there's no suspects in the murder. Obviously, the police are thinking, well, you know, hey, you know, this, this guy has all these pictures of these women. Who knows? Maybe it was, uh, you know, a, a crazy boyfriend or a psycho husband or whatever. Um, but they, again, with no signs of forced entry, no robbery, things like that, that those kind of quickly go out. And basically, John is your only suspect. And because they don't have enough evidence, he gets away. Um Funny enough, the, the, they actually reopened the case in 1992, and oh, wow. John Carpenter is actually arrested and charged with with his murder. So they go back in, they find a photograph of the car that shows some some tissue on the on the on like the seat or something that could possibly be brain matter. matter. So uh, they. Uh, you know, they reopened a the case due to that, and it's the same kind of thing. You know, due to lack of evidence, there's no weapon ever found. The DNA comes back inconclusive. There's speculation on events. Um, all that stuff basically boils down to him getting acquitted again 
for a second time because there's just not enough to prosecute him. Yeah. Um, the son. Let's see here. Okay, so he's acquitted. Uh, he's acquitted, and he actually dies in 1998. Uh, John Carpenter. So he's acquitted, dies in 98, and uh, obviously now now you have basically nobody left in this situation. Um, the son comes forward and and throws out the idea that the only person that benefited from Crane dying was actually the second wife, uh, Patricia Olson, um, because in the will the kids had been written out of it and she got everything. Mm-hmm. So had he lived, she wouldn't have really got anything. Had he died, she gets everything. And so the son, uh, uh, Robert, said, hey, have you guys thought about maybe it's my stepmom? And the police are basically like, no, we don't think, we. she's never crossed our paths. You know, we, 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 you know, we don't have any reason to think that, that she would be involved in this at all. Uh, so they actually, this, you know, there's still a lot of popularity to the case. There's still a lot of buzz around it. So actually, again, in 2016, uh, somebody asked if they can go and do another DNA test on the blood that's left in the car. And they say yes. And so he uses up the rest of the evidence or the rest of the DNA to try and prove. And same thing, it comes back, you know, that they get a blood type and that's about it. And the other person they can't find. And that's it. So there's no more DNA to do anything with this. And and everybody's dead, basically, that's associated with the case. So Jeez. for the most part, this will go down in history as one of those, uh, you know, we'll never know who did it kind of murders. And, uh, yeah, that's the story of Mr. Bob Crane. Damn. It's a shame. Yeah, that's, that's crazy. Yeah. Um, I mean, you can obviously go down two different paths with this. Yes, it was John Carpenter. Uh, clearly, he didn't like being dumped, if you will. Yeah. Uh, and, and lost his temper and, and, you know, did that. Or, you know, like they said, you know, Bob Crane is banging a lot of women. And uh, who knows if he just banged the wrong woman and she, uh, her husband or boyfriend or whatever, yeah. found out about it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I would seem, I, you know, I read multiple articles on this topic and it would seem that all signs point to John. But again, with... Uh, with inconclusive DNA tests and things like that, they weren't able to prove it. So, yeah, every, everything seems so circumstantial. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a lot of things. I mean, the fact that they found blood in this car, I mean, like, what the fuck is that? Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, they never, like I said, they never found what the weapon was. None of that stuff. So, nothing was, you know, and, and like, the son was actually called to the crime scene to identify the body. So, he was walking around in there. And he was saying that, like, you know, they didn't do a very, the cops weren't, didn't do a great job. They, you know, the, the Scottsdale apartment. They said that they said that the, the police department dealt with like a murder a year, if that, you know. And now you have a murder of this high-profile celebrity. So it's like they didn't know what the fuck they were doing. Right. You yeah, know. They're just yeah. like, okay, well, I guess we got to do something. <laughs> like, yeah. That's funny. so. Uh, so yeah. So uh, uh, it goes down as one of those murders that happens that nobody has any idea what happened, and unfortunately, it happened to somebody that was extremely famous at one point. And uh, had a torrid, uh, torrid past uh, when it came to his uh, private life. In the movie, there's a lot of uh, a lot of like S and M stuff that's kind of uh, implied, and a lot of that was said that was that was added just for dramatic effect. Mm-hmm. Like that, that was really never any in any of the photos or anything like that. He wasn't a sadomasochist. He just really liked sex and recording it. Uh, but yeah, they said there was no real S and M. Interesting. Yeah. Cool. 
Um, so this one definitely ties in with your guys, uh, but because um, I guess for people that don't know, on Hollywood's Haunted Tours, when we when we were live in person, uh, Victor Kill- <laughs> Victor Killian was uh, part of a stop that we had at, at the, the at the Lido yeah. uh, Hotel. Um, so I guess the real story of Victor Killian is actually kind of a story of two people um, because it, the the coincidence of these two people passing uh couldn't can't really be ignored i guess especially when it comes to the story in small hollywood at that time uh most of my information i got from wikipedia memories of memories of hollywood.com creepyla.com and travelanche uh, which is basically a blog that was dedicated uh uh to different um unsolved murder cases in hollywood oh i want to um, check that out yeah it's really, really cool that's... that travelanche yeah oh it's like God. it's like blah 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 dot blogspot dot this dot that you know so it's kind of can a, you please but, send that to me because yeah, like yeah. i'm at a loss like no yeah they had find... some they had some really cool stuff some unsolved murders and stuff like that it was really i was thinking maybe we just guys. do like an unsolved murder episode um, but that, I, guess, I guess that's kind episodes. of what this is too sort of mine was solved. um Oh, sorry. Mine was solved. Just that's true, like, yeah. You know. That's true, yeah. Show off. They found the guy. Spoiler and it was alert. Super this one's not solved. Who it was. <laughs> um, so, <clears throat> in 1979, Victor Killian, uh, uh, who is a character actor, we'll get into him a little bit more, but I just kind of wanted to tell you the, the story that we're going to get into. Um, he, he was uh, an actor in Hollywood in 1979, and he appeared on an episode of All in the Family, which was entitled The Return of Stephanie's Father. Uh, in, in the episode, he portrayed a hotel clerk at a CD hotel. Um, in the same episode was his friend and fellow character actor, Charles Wagenheim. Um, he appeared in, in the same episode as a bum in the hotel lobby. Now, just weeks before this episode airs, on March 16th, 1979, which also happens to be Victor Killian's birthday, the um, Charles Wagenheim was bludgeoned to, uh, sorry, bludgeoned to death in his Hollywood apartment um, after he was surprised coming home from grocery shopping uh, during an act of robbery. Um, that was the story that, that came out right, right away. Now, five days later, on March 11th, 1979, Victor Killian, who also lived alone in Hollywood, just blocks from Wagenheim. I think they actually figured it was exactly two miles away from Wagenheim. So it's not blocks. That's actually kind of... I mean, if you live in Hollywood, that's a little bit further. Um, (laughs) It's almost impossible to walk. Yeah, that's hilarious, right? Yeah. Well, two miles Um, is like from La Brea to what? Gower? Maybe, yeah, maybe... Maybe even further. Yeah, I'll walk that. Um, all right. <laughs> no one, I can walk right? that. No one, was, no one was challenging you. Our tour is like, our tour is like two and a half miles. Throw down, put your sneakers on. <laughs> Throw down, put your sneakers on. <laughs> Let's go. I'll, I'll can walk I'll, you right now. Jameson, I'll outwalk you any day. <laughs> she, walk. she probably will, yeah. I probably um, will. <laughs> so, so yeah, um, yeah. Five days later, March eleventh, nineteen seventy nine, Victor Killian, who lived alone in his house uh, just blocks from Wagenheim, was also beaten to death by burglars in his apartment. 
Now, on March 20th, 1979, the All in the Family uh, airs the episode uh, posthumously, uh, The Return of Stephanie's Father, and this became Charles Wagenheim and Victor Killian's last performances on screen. Um, and if you didn't know, Victor Killian's uh, cremated remains were scattered in the Rose Garden at the Westwood Village Memorial Park Cemetery. And that's apparently pretty rare uh, to be scattered amongst the garden there. There was another actress that was scattered there, but I didn't recognize her name, so I didn't really... I guess I should have mentioned it, huh? The, forgot, the forgotten actress. It. Yeah, right? Yeah. Was it, was it Julia Roberts? <laughs> well, that's hilarious. <laughs> um, so Charles Wagenheim was uh, 83 when he passed. Um, he was an established actor, probably best known um, as playing the assassin in the foreign correspondent which was an alfred hitchcock film um he did have a very recognizable face after like looking at the the film or not he's i didn't in, watch the film but i watched like you know a couple of clips of, he's in a few things yeah he has like a very uh a, 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 a very bookable face i guess yeah, yeah and very like interesting honestly it's not a, about being the celebrity it's about making a living out here right in yeah, la yeah you know. Mm -hmm. So uh, on March 6th, uh, 1979, a nurse caring for Charles Wagenheim's uh, wife, actually, at the time, um, she calls police to report that um, she had left the apartment for a little while just to do laundry and then returns and finds Charles Wagenheim dead. So this is the original story. Um, two months later, they unfortunately arrest that nurse, um, because they actually determined that she had bludgeoned, uh, Charles Wagenheim to death with a table leg. And this was after he had confronted her about some checks that he believed that she had stolen. Mm -hmm. Um, so... I still don't fully, like, understand this. Like, how did she rip a table leg off of... Well, I like mean, a table what, or a coffee table or whatever. There was a, a couple of instances that I read about this. This was just the one I put because, on yeah. here because it was the most concise. But there was uh, another one that kind of said that it was just like a thing that he he came home and saw her rifling through things was one of the stories. Mm -hmm. and, and was like, you know what? I've noticed some checks are missing, you know, what's going on? And it became this whole altercation altercations you know you can't really you know you can't really judge what's gonna happen or you know what i mean like if it became if you're fighting with somebody and it becomes physical sometimes you're just gonna do what you have to do to you know like if there's a if yeah, there, but you know like, it's like when there's a a, a glass vase you know in a hollywood movie and they're guess, like yeah i gotta bash this dude's head with it i guess like the table leg thing is like, how'd she get it off? Because like every time, like I've had to dismantle a table, it's been like. Well, maybe maybe they were in an altercation to the point where they broke a table. That's what I was that's, thinking. Oh, okay, okay. You know, See, that's, that makes that, more sense. I mean, that's what I um, imagined, but yeah. they actually don't really say that. <laughs> but there's also you know yeah. so much un unknown about this. Was um, it an Ikea table leg? Right, yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah <laughs> she right. had an Allen wrench. That shit. What is... <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. Oh, my Dude, God. This little Allen wrench. <laughs> <laughs> That's what they determined the, the, the tool was. That's hilarious. Oh, my Tired God. Swedish death. <laughs> 
Um, so what was um, what was the amount of years that your 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 uh, perpetrator got for eleven? For the death eleven. So this beats that, and by beating that, I mean it's less of a sentence because they caught they busted the nurse. The nurse did it. They know she did it. She was actually sentenced to only eight years in prison for manslaughter. Mm. Eight years. Wow. Isn't that crazy? Eight years. Like, you're an old man to, to death and you get eight years. You know what I mean? Like, you, you were trying to steal his money, too. You yeah, know right. what I mean? Like, you were busted stealing his money and then you beat his ass with his own table leg and you just get eight years. Like, yeah. come on. Like, she's probably what? still a nurse right now. <laughs> God, I'm going to knock on wood. I don't have to... That's particle board. Ah, damn it! That's <laughs> all. That's all. That's never. We don't have. Nothing, we don't have any real wood. There's lam- wood panels laminate. that are laminate in our place that's too. That's like particle board with that like wood <laughs> like sticker on the front, like that. <laughs> uh, all right, so that was uh, Charles Wagenheim. That happened uh, five days before Victor Killian. Uh, uh, passed so but victor killian obviously finds out about this this is on his birthday he's very upset about it um they were good friends and yeah the you know he's also upset that that was the last time they're you know last time they were able, able uh, ever able to perform uh together you know luckily they were on the same episode which you know could be cool um so let's kind of get to victor killian's story um so victor who was 88 years old at that time um most people say that he was probably because when we do the tour or at least when i did the tour um i always mentioned that he was coming back from a bar um but we were never able to pinpoint what that bar was um some people say it was the lemon twist lounge which apparently was a thing um or just coming back from playboy liquors getting a little quick pint i know where playboy liquors is yeah you know everybody knows i mean if you know hollywood you know where playboy liquors is Jameson, um, do you know where Playboy Liquors is? Yes, yeah, literally across the street from yeah. Toledo. I was about yeah. to say, yeah, of course he does. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't realize Playboy the Liquors had been there. It's about that 200 feet from it. That I didn't, long. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, so, uh, according to um, the next day's L.A. Times, uh, Victor Killian appeared to be preparing a late night snack when he was killed. A uh, detective told them that the apartment was found in such a way to suggest the assailant might have entered with a pass key, uh, robbery being a possible motive. Um, on memoriesofhollywood.com, it was actually about a guy that lived in the Lido when he was 11 years old. And he found out about the Victor Killian thing, you know, happening. And it was kind of like this. It was an interesting article, you know, because it was from, you know, not the point of view of an 11 year old because obviously he's writing it now but kind of like what his framing what his frame of mind was back then um and he mentioned that um uh, sal Mineo had had uh, uh been killed earlier that year and then ed wood uh passed away uh weeks before as well and ed wood apparently lived if you know where playboy liquors is if you go down Yucca a little bit further to mm-hmm. that 7-Eleven, Ed Wood lived right behind that 7-Eleven. Right yeah. There. When I went to school, which AMDA is literally right behind that 7-Eleven. That's true, yeah. That's true. We, uh, 
there was rumors that the bungalows that were on campus where we lived that Ed Wood haunted those bungalows, <laughs> which is crazy is because it? now that makes perfect sense. That, In that's his broad panties. That's funny, yeah. right? Yeah, that's funny. Um, yeah. <laughs> but like, um, no, I can attest our plumbing was totally from the 1930s and those bungalows were a hundred percent haunted I, yeah that's they right. were so haunted like the tv would turn on and off our things would go missing all the time stuff oh, that we like put at one place would be moved and like i don't know if it was like because we had crazy roommates or we were disorganized maybe you know <laughs> like that could explain it but it was like that's what we were always like telling ourselves, you know, like, oh, okay, it's probably just because I was messy, you know, but like the TV definitely turned on and off all the time. And our bungalows, they, the building is super old. It, I remember it was called Yucca Tower, where Amda is, and the bungalows around it were where the actors were housed. And then the building itself was like the business building. Hmm. Uh, so, I mean, anyways, that makes some sense because I, I heard, like, Ed Wood haunts this area of the campus. And I know for a fact that, like, our uh, film teacher made up, <laughs> like, he was like the Black Dahlia. He would always be like, Black Dahlia, Black Dahlia all the time whenever, like, we would mention hauntings and stuff. But, like, there was definitely some cold energy on, I want to say it was the fifth floor because we went exploring throughout that whole thing. I mean, we were, like, 19 years old, 18, 19 years old, like, had to live on this very super small campus, you know, a couple bungalows and this old, old, old building where all of our stuff was. Like, Dan, Danny, my roommate, and I, we, like, literally climbed the fire escape to the top of this building one night uh, but we explored that area, like, very thoroughly, and, like, I would definitely say, like, one of the floors of that building had, like, this really icy cold energy, and, I don't know, just, like, weird stuff like that. I don't know. So, yeah. sorry to tangent. No, no, no. Cool. <laughs> um, so, like I said that, um, they, uh, the memories of Hollywood, it was, like, from this kid that lived there um or this guy that lived there when he was younger um and he mentioned that um when when they say that robbery was a motive you know he mentioned that the you needed a giant iron pass key in order to get inside the building um so it would have been kind of obvious when people came in and out uh nowadays um or at least the last time i was there i had a friend that lived there for a little while and it was just like a very loud buzzer that they have. It's like a pawn shop, basically. Mm -hmm. um, so you would, I mean, you would hear someone coming in and out for sure. Um, some believe that Victor had met somebody at a bar that, you know, Playboy or the Lemon Twist Lounge. Uh, and he was killed after inviting the man in. But there's also that report of like that it looks like he was sitting down for a late night snack. Um, so that, you know, that's, that's, that, that'll come in a little bit later. But if, if the buzzer's going on and off all night, like people would ignore it at some point. No. Yeah. I'm just saying yeah. there would have been like some type of a record of, you know, 
yeah, going in, I guess. I, guess. Yeah. I wonder if the lemon twist is where the parlor is at right now. Could be, yeah. I, I didn't that would really, make sense. Yeah. Um, so the person that handled both of the, the Wagenheim crimes and, uh, or the Wagenheim crime and Victor Killian's murder was Detective Steve Hodell. <laughs> Uh, and if you don't know that name, right, yeah, if you don't know Detective Steve Hodell, um, you definitely will soon. We're about to do a big episode on the Black Dahlia, um, so we're going to dive directly into that. Um, D- Steve Hodell is basically um, a detective in the Los Angeles area for a very long time, what, like 27 plus years or something? Something um, like that, from the 60s to the late 80s, I think, right, or right, yeah. Um, most... I think he retired. Right, yeah. Um, most notably, um, he wrote the book, uh, the uh, Black, Black Dahlia, Dahlia Avenger, um, which was a bestseller, basically claiming that his own father was the Black Dahlia murderer and also the Zodiac killer. Um, so this uh, was a big thing, you know, when, when I researched it originally, I remember, but he the the thing that made this cool was because after reading a lot about steve hodell you realized how he was um very meticulous and that he wouldn't let any stone go unturned you know so when you find out that he went through this case and found no connection to it you could probably it's a safe bet that there probably was no connection to it um I mean, I feel like he, even with, like, the Black Dahlia case and his father, like, he thoroughly investigates it, you know, even though it's still not completely solved, like, he does uncover quite a bit, you know, mm-hmm. so. Um, so, Victor Killian, to kind of just give you a little bit of a backstory on him, um, he was from Jersey City, New Jersey, um, which also Charles Wagenheim was from as well. Um, he became a professional actor in 1909, uh, starting out in a vaudeville company, uh, traveling with other stock companies. From 1926 uh, to 1930, he appeared in 21 Broadway productions. Um, most of them didn't wow. last a few weeks. Uh, no. But the, long- <laughs> but the longest was a revival of O'Neill's Beyond the Horizon, which lasted a couple of months. Uh, towards the end of that period, he began to appear in Vitaphone shorts, which I thought was interesting because Vitaphone at that time was probably just coming out. And Vitaphone you know? was invented by uh, the Warner Brothers. Warner, yeah. Steve Warner. Yeah. Sam Warner. Sam Warner, yeah. Sam Warner. <laughs> Not invented, but in coalition with General Electric. Yeah. General Electric, yeah. Um, but so he also, then he was shot uh, in, um, oh, sorry, the Vitaphone shorts were shot in uh, Astoria, Queens. Uh, which he was in at that time. Um, but he began his career on stage uh, with the vaudeville and plays, uh, vaudeville and plays, sorry. Uh, one play was called Valley Forge, and he appeared without pants. Uh, the running joke was that he could never find a pair that fit. It was a hit, but people kept wanting him to do the pants routine, which is to come out without pants. You know, it was a very... It, this is vaudeville type of shit, yeah. you know, like very one note comedy. The groundlings, you know, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, oh my god, I've got no pants. I'm going to run around complaining why I don't have pants. You know, like that. Right? Yeah. He, he might have not even said words. Who knows? Um, so, 
this is a quote from him. Imagine making a bid to fame on a no-pants basis. Imagine being condemned never to wear pants again. They have me scared. I go over my clothes daily in the closet to see that no one has absconded with my trousers, thus forcing me into my terrifying routine. <laughs> which, He's afraid someone's going to steal his which, pants. Yeah, right? Well, I mean... It's like it's like the guy. Like if you saw him, you know, and you're like, "Oh, it's the pants guy. Let's take his pants!" Oh my god, it'll be hilarious. <laughs> He'll be like without pants, like he always is. You know what I mean? Like there's so many idiots uh, that would do that. You know, you know. Um, to be given a tour and then be like, "This is the place that Victor Killian died." Like, is that the guy with no pants? <laughs> oh my god, it's the pantsless ghost. I love this guy. <laughs> oh man. 1926 oh, hysterical. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, um, uh, Victor Killian eventually went to Hollywood in 1930. He signed a contract with Columbia Pictures. Um, they told him he didn't have he didn't have leading man looks, so he gratefully accepted character work. Um, he also said, "I didn't Ouch. know." He he also said, "Though I don't know what character work means." Because isn't every role a character? Yeah, right. right? Straight up, yeah. Um, in 1935, he began a very long career as a character actor in over 100 features. Uh, his roles ranged from walk-ons to secondary parts, uh, but he had a very memorable face uh, and voice. His, his physicality was very commanding on screen. Um, he usually played villains because of that. Uh, or a henchman, or uh, sometimes a sheriff in a western. Mm -hmm. um, but he, <laughs> he always played like a pain in the ass, or like a mean person, usually. Um, huh. The only time uh, he didn't was he was sometimes was played as preachers, and twice he played Abraham Lincoln. Um, while participating in a fight scene in the film Reap the Wild Wind, and this was in 1942 with John Wayne, he suffered the loss of an eye. Um, that Yeah, that actually he could no longer see in this eye. Uh, a factor which apparently some people thought um, halted his career. But we, we talked earlier about how he's not a leading man, you know, so that could have been into it, you know, like. If you just have a bill in his face, you know, obviously you're not going to be cast as your John Wayne roles or whatever. Um, but also, he lost the eye. Um, yeah, being when in a fight scene with John Wayne. I mean, if you're oh. going to lose your eye, yeah. you might oh. like losing it to John Wayne. You know, that's like... a cool story. Yeah, that's like the story that people say when they like, you know, fall on ice trying to open their car door or something and like nah i just fought this dude he tried to mug me but man i kicked his ass also it was john wayne i, I yeah. feel like i feel like john <laughs> wayne would have felt really bad though too oh you know? come over here for the room let's have a drink on me i'm um, sorry i did have a drink that was for john wayne nice. um <laughs> so where was i um so, unfortunately, yeah, like I said, some people said that, you know, um, his lack of depth perception, I guess now, um, was a reason that people weren't casting him. But a lot of people also believed it was because he was being blacklisted. Um, and this was in the 50s during the McCarthyism era. Yeah, the House Un-American... What? House <laughs> Un-American Activities 
<laughs> what is that? You don't know what that is? Oh, God. Now I have to Google it. The... Well, I guess I you don't know what that I don't, is. I know more than you know, obviously. I don't know because okay. you're not telling me what he it is. No, yeah, I know about McCarthyism. Yeah. Yeah, can you come back? Can, House, I have it right here. Okay, House Un-American Activities Committee. Okay. House Un-American Acti- Activities Committee basically was the ones that were like, "You're a commie. You're a commie." Yeah. yeah. Um. So McCarthyism, okay, if you whatever. don't know, is the name <laughs> given to the period when Senator Joseph McCarthy abused the power. Uh, that he had to frame his adversaries as communists, uh, basically blacklisting them in their industries, whatever they were, actors, lawyers, whatever. Um, Today it is the practice of making accusations of subversion or treason, especially when related to communism without proper regard for evidence, which is kind of evident nowadays. That's definitely why I wanted to say that. We have, news. we have a little bit of that. Yeah, real news. That's well, hilarious, yeah. Like, when we did the read of the Crucible, like, that was written in the time. No, exactly. Yeah, the, yeah, like you said, yeah, you're a communist. That's what I was going to say. Yeah, is you're a witch, you're a witch. You know, ba- that's basically what that this was, is. That uh, yeah. specifically because Miller. Arthur Miller, who yeah. was married to Marilyn Monroe, he was brought forth in front of the House Un-American Activities Committee <laughs> <laughs> to testify, and he was told... You, in order to get immunity, you need to name names. And that was the thing that they always said was like, you need to name other people in order to get immunity. And so a lot of people like were wrongfully accused because other people were trying to gain immunity. Mm. They were just like, oh, well, I kind of know this guy. So I'm going to accuse him. Yeah, it's like the whole uh, snitch mentality. Which is so unfortunate because like, like, I'm sure there are plenty of people out there who would throw me under the bus because they like because they slightly know me, you know. They slightly oh oh Tia kind of pissed me off that one time and I kind of slightly know her. Are so, you a communist or a witch? Well, I am a witch. I think she's a commie witch. I am a witch, but I also keep my political. Uh, Agenda. Dirty commie witches. That's hilarious. Oh my god, Roxana beat me to it. That's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Roxana. I will take Thank that. Thank you, Roxana. Uh, always on the same page. Nicely done. Nicely done. Toast to that. I'm done. I can't believe she I'm said commie done. witches. Oh man, nice. Okay, continuing. <laughs> um, so. So, like, yeah, like I said, he was blacklisted for the whole McCarthyism era. Um, but he did continue to act. Um, and this was actually due to Actors' Equity Association. Um, basically, they didn't give in to the McCarthyism era, you know, and they, they were able to let him continue acting, mostly for theater work. Uh, he returned to Broadway, appearing in Look Homeward Angel from the 57 to 59 gang's all here and gideon and then he appeared on television uh, but this was mostly when he started in the 70s because there was uh they needed some old timers uh, is basically kind of how it came about was <laughs> they needed some old time actors you know uh so he appeared on the brady bunch kojak gunsmoke planet of the apes the jeffersons 
And then he had a big stint as the Fernwood Flasher on Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman. Um, pants guy. Yep. Of course. That's right. Yeah. That's why I had this. Yeah. Exactly. Like that, I didn't know that. His, I knew he had a big part on that. Mary was Hartman, that was Mary his Hartman. that was his bit that the whole time. Every time he was on, it was like, oh, there was the Fernwood Flasher. Oh my god! Because we tell people to be like, we tell our tour guides on our tour to like be like, he had a big part on Mary Hartman. Mary right. Hartman. Yeah. Exactly. And, yeah. <laughs> showing his old penis. <laughs> 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 I'm out. (laughs) Oh my god, that's funny. Uh, (laughs) I can't. I'm like trying to cover my face, but I can't. Um. So yeah. So that was. Um. So yeah. He he. Then after being in Mary Hartman, he did his last performance on All in the Family, like we talked about earlier, uh, which did air after he passed away. Uh, the rest- the return of Stephanie's father. Um, so, I guess what we d- the only thing what we really know is that he was last seen getting his newspaper by his neighbors on uh, the ninth, uh, March 9th, nineteen seventy nine. After that, he was found by his son on March eleventh. He it was reported that he Victor was slouched on his left side. In front of his recliner, which was right in front of the TV, the TV was on, he had a hearing aid in his left ear and an earplug for the TV in his right ear. Um, Like we said before, he was apparently preparing for a late night snack and there was no forced entry. The coroner did note that there was a stab wound on his inner right elbow, which which was made by a very sharp instrument. Um... (laughs) Whoever did this beat the crap out of Victor, was a quote. One of the marks left some sort of triangular shape. The murder weapon has never been found. And when you mentioned the tripod earlier, Jameson, I was like thinking about the tripod that we have here, and it's got a triangular shape to it when the extension thing comes out. I mean, ours does. So I was like, that kind of seems like it could, you know what I mean? Like, if you did it with enough force to an 88-year-old man. Oh, sure. You know what I mean? But this was, like, through his head, that triangular thing. I mean, we have that on the video um, for the tour of the of the coroner's, oh, you yeah. know, the, the drawing of, like, what the stab yeah, wounds look like. Maybe we should put like. that up on the Instagram. We should, yeah. Um, so the official cause of death was cranial cerebral injuring. Uh, multiple blunt force trauma to the head. He died with his pants on. <laughs> Brown socks too. Um, he also, if you didn't know, it was in apartment two twenty six. Um, I did, I did, I did remember that because I remember I yeah. say that on the tour, and I'm so glad that I was right. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, very. Um, very sad sad story because you will never really know what happened it it probably wasn't that obviously it wasn't that same nurse you know because she didn't get out in time although eight years she probably got out in time to kill someone else um <laughs> which is really yeah. weird that you only get eight years for I mean, it's fucking just, it's manslaughter. Like, very... <laughs> like... Got a resume. So it says here you saved five people but killed one. <laughs> yeah. That's hilarious. <laughs> That's you like know, the same thing away. as like four out of five dentists recommend. 
um is it just a, just for you guys to be honest like here's a little bit of backstory on the lido itself uh the original lido the exclusive venetian resort cast a spell over the roaring 20s playing to the aspirations of los angeles society this is also by jesse katz from lamag.com um da, 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 da. the city's upscale department stores from bullocks to i magnin showcased lido dresses lido hats lido sandals and lido pajamas the beach costume of smart europeans the Wait, knickerbocker what? it what? was a department store no they had department stores in it yeah in inside the building oh weird um there was weird. a there was even a salon apparently that uh one of that was the last thing running inside the lido was a salon um that um the last person running it was a apparently a hooker uh that and then and then after that that was why probably one of the reasons why they closed it that's weird um, like i always thought it was very interesting that there was like a salon and a restaurant and like some shops in the knickerbocker which is like mm-hmm. right around the corner that's very interesting well if the knickerbocker like, had it too but also the lido did yeah, yeah. but that's interesting because that was like maybe that was popular of the time mm-hmm. you know okay cool cool cool, cool. um Continue. sorry, sorry. Uh, just trying to understand the Knickerbocker Hotel had its posh Lido room where Rudolph Valentino danced the tango. The Ambassador Hotel called its pool the Lido Beach and its restaurant the Lido Palm. To the south, a choice strip of Newport Bay sand was carved into Lido Isle. The name conjured glamour and sophistication, appealing notions to an L.A. that was still a very much provincial outpost. When the Bards, a prolific clan of developers, announced plans for four large residential projects in Hollywood, it made perfect sense that the most expensive would be known simply as the Lido. Completed in 1928 at a cost of $650,000, it's a very solid Class B structure, not as Baroque as some of its more ambitious neighbors, but its location north of the boulevard, three blocks west of Vine, was hard to beat. Um, the rooms were tastefully furnished. The front desk was open 24 hours. There was a coffee shop and a maid service, a valet, and a solarium. Bachelors started at $2.50 a day, $60 a month. It was proclaimed in 1931. It was Hollywood's smartest apartment hotel. <laughs> okay. Oh, man, that's, yeah, that, that is too funny. The um, smartest apartment hotel. I would that's stay funny. in a bachelor's for $60 a month. 60 bucks a month yeah that, that's that's crazy yeah um yeah it's a trippy spot and also i forgot to mention i didn't have this in my paperwork but i did remember uh doing the research that apparently the lido had its own bar for a little while mm. you didn't so, mention so maybe um, victor killian was hanging out there too maybe at the at that bar yeah that's true oh yeah sorry i didn't even mention his ghost stories yeah so victor killian is uh one we've talked about a lot um the Chinese theater talks about him as well. Um, he's seen inside inside the theater, but mostly people have said they've seen him in front of the uh, the Walk of Fame stars. Uh, like to go there a lot. Well, I couldn't really find that. I tried looking yeah, really hard to see if story. there was some type of actual evidence of him seeing multiple movies in a night, and I couldn't really find anything. Mm-hmm. I, I know that he attended there. Obviously, he probably saw... He was in, you know, a few different films, so I'm sure something he was in was playing there. Or also, it's a movie theater. He probably just That's went to go the see the movie. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, but you know, there's a lot of, yeah, there's a lot of stories as to whether or not, you know, he's there and hanging out, but uh, yeah, I couldn't really find too much of solid evidence with that, but there's tons and tons of people that have supposedly seen him. When we do the tour at the Lido, a lot of people see weird orbs and stuff. Um, I've had people see like a face before at the Lido. Yeah. Um, but yeah, not, not, nothing that I could find that was, um, solid or you know incredibly backed up with you know evidence or something you know but yeah it's a it's a really interesting story because yeah that's no one no one will ever really know what happened what happened um so we're coming up on our christmas holiday here and i was gonna say that next week we should all do hometown hauntings um but I feel like Jameson's onto something with doing some Christmas stuff. So Jameson, you can have the option. You can either bring us some Christmas lore next week or uh, bring us a hometown haunting if you want to. Or, yeah, so up to you. Do your uh, choice, huh? Yeah, okay. up to you what you want to bring us next week. Either way, we won't be disappointed. Next week will probably be our last week before we take a break for the Christmas holiday. Uh, I already know my hometown haunting that I want to bring you guys. So can't bring me down (laughs) or change my idea. So sorry. Uh, Pat, you you have the choice too. You can either bring us a Christmas story or a hometown haunting. Uh, What if it's both? Or Don't just, fucking set or, yourself up for that. Or though. what if it's just one? <laughs> <laughs> what if he was born in the North Pole? Um, but after that, we're gonna, we should take our break. But then when we come back, I do want to come back with uh, full force and come in back, come back with um, the Black Dahlia story. So, um, I do have assignments for every single person that has been involved with this podcast, which I will give you later on, (laughs) (laughs) but just know, know your shit about the Black Dahlia, get it fucking together, guys. (laughs) (laughs) Because... Finish your book. I know, right? Finish the book. Right. (laughs) I didn't finish my book, too. I didn't even finish, um... One day she'll darken. I did finish Root of All Evil. Um, but I will get it together because that's my part of the story. Is the fauna part. No, it'll be good. It'll be good. So, anyway, Sorry, Bo, on this one. Uh, good night, Facebook. Good night, Instagram. Good night, Twitter. Good night, <laughs> Hollywood's Haunted, the podcast, is the collective work of the owners and employees of Hollywood Haunted Tours. We do our best. And it's available on iHeartRadio, iTunes, Stitcher, and wherever you get your podcast. Subscribe, like, and share. Please tell your friends. Please, over this Christmas season, be generous and tell your friend about this cool podcast that you've been listening to. Give the um, gift of pod. <laughs> give the gift of pod. For only 10 cents a day. <laughs> right. You can provide pod 
to one of <laughs> you can support a hungry child with the gift of pot <laughs> subscribe like and share because sharing is scaring <laughs> don't forget to check out our patreon at www.patreon.com slash hhthepodcast uh, for more exclusive contests, stickers, shirts, and more, which is also available on the Patreon. For more information, Hollywood's Haunted, visit our website on hollywoodshaunted.com. If you have any questions, I don't know what I'm pointing to. Uh, or feel free to email us at hollywoodshaunted at gmail.com.